Well, hello and welcome to episode two of The Wine List, which is effectively a podcast for those of us who quite like a glass of wine, but would like to know a little bit more about wine and more more crucially, not feel ridiculous when confronted with a massive wine list. I'm Oliver Turnbull, and as usual, I'm joined with my good friend of about a third of a century and wine expert, Mr. Richard Lane. Richard, good evening. Hey, oh, good evening. Episode two, excited. So usual things, what have you decided to name this podcast? And then crucially, of course, what wines are we going to be um, tasting hopefully in a few minutes? I, I, I love your enthusiasm. Yeah, I just, mm. you know, the way you got to the wine so quickly there, and that's good. So clearly uh, episode one has rubbed off on you all. Episode two is entitled 3050 and all that. And all yeah. of that... <laughs> will become clearer in a minute and the wines one white and, and one red tonight we're going to be in chile on the kind of west coast of chile sort of not just tucked in just off the pacific ocean and we're going to be drinking a 100 percent chardonnay from a producer called tabali from an area called the limari valley by contrast closer to home in the Loire Valley, in sort of central western france we're going to be tasting a lovely wine made from 100 percent cabernet franc just before we go on, a little bit of housekeeping stroke feedback from episode one. Oh, lovely. The Académie Française, not terribly happy about your mispronunciation of Sauvignon in episode one God, with the Sauvignon. Well, you kind of said the Sauvignon, the, oh, the Sauvignon Blanc from uh, Marlborough, New Zealand. Sauvignon. Oh, God. That was me, was it? Uh, yeah. I don't understand that. I, I, I'm sure I would naturally say Sauvignon. No, maybe not. I don't know. I think the problem oh, is a lot of people shorten Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a black grape variety. They often shorten it in English to Cab, cab Sav. And so there's this kind of Sav thing going on. And anyway, just need to correct that. So apologies, uh, Académie Française. And also um, the regulator of the Spanish language, the, regu- <laughs> the regular door, has been in touch with me. Very cross about the way I, pre- I said Rioja in the last episode. And sorry, it's obviously Rioja. That was the regular door of the Spanish language known as my wife, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Oh, we are in trouble. And very briefly, all this podcast is called The Wine List. How is The Wine List doing? I sent you a nice electronic version of The Wine List of my favourite restaurant, which is Shea Bruce in uh, southwest London. How are you getting on with it? This thing is probably 30, 30 pages long. So if I was presented with this on the table, not only would there be no not much room for my bread and butter, but there's just page after page of wine, which would make me, you know, almost come out in a cold sweat Spanish wine Portugal wine Germany wine Australian uh, Austrian wine the rest of Europe and the Balkans white as a whole section and of course the South African American and French just runs to about five pages on its own and there's a whole page of Beaujolais a whole page of Bordeaux and then on page 15 regional France red then they've got um, bottles that go up to 220 pounds I as you know are from Yorkshire so that would make me start to quiver and then there's some ones which have uh, different sides of the river as well I couldn't believe it in Bordeaux left bank uh, Chateau Bernard uh, Bernadotte for example right bank uh, Chateau Lyonnais and I'm like I, I couldn't believe it really that, that, that it was so specific that not only you have to worry about continents countries regions rivers but each side of a river has its own speciality ah well all, all become clear stick with me mate and left bank and right bank and up bank and down bank it's all going to become very clear well hold my hand and take me through this i maze. will i will hold your hand come on let's 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 crack on with this episode 3050 and all that 3050 any ideas what that means well actually 
even before we started thinking about this podcast, I knew that because some very pompous man at work talked about it exactly. He said, after a place full 30, 50, I don't suppose you know what that means. So what I think it is, is for various reasons that we'll go into over this and subsequent episodes, there is a particular latitude band around the earth that lends itself to winemaking, not too hot, not too cold, and has the right sort of seasonality. And it's between 30 and 50 degrees latitude. And not only that, the thing works in the Southern Hemisphere as well as the Northern Hemisphere. That's how I understand it. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. That's the concept of the 30-50 thing. I hope you've got your globe there, Roll. Have you got the globe's hat? Yeah, I've got a rather pleasing, old-fashioned... Um, you know those globes that have a, a sort of faded white look to them? A sepia feel, Yes, if you will. yes, yes. Yeah, so I can spin around the world. I'm going around South, uh, South America, Australia, Africa. Yeah, you can see the countries that fall within the bandings of 30 to 50, both in the North and Southern Hemisphere. To repeat from the first episode, we're not doing a formal wine class here. I think the context for you all, and obviously for this series of the podcast, is to get a hold of some of these key themes. Geography is just so important when it comes to understanding wine, as is history, as is food and other aspects of culture, and all of these things we're going to touch on. If you begin to understand geography in relation to the vine, which is a plant, let's just keep it really simple. A vine is a plant that produces its fruit, which are called grapes, of course, and it's the grapes that give us uh, wine. If we understand a bit about how geography influences the possibilities of producing grapes, that can then give us an insight into the type of wine styles, the grape varieties, and the wines that are produced around the world. And that's why we're looking at this thing through the kind of 30-50 lens, if you like. The most important thing is people think, well, surely a vine just needs warmth and sunlight and all those important things to, to ripen grapes. It's only because the planet and our summers have been getting warmer these past two decades. The evidence, by the way, is incontrovertible. If you've got any um, climate change sceptics around, they've only got to start looking at wine and viticulture to just see the evidence of climate change in terms of England starting to produce decent wine and places in northern France that had as often as not a terrible vintage as often as a good one now getting regularly warm summers and great vintages so i mean just a word on vintages because obviously vintage ties into this conversation about climate you know you go to places like um, burgundy or the loire valley where we're going to be tasting a bit later on our red wine you would have to really really know your vintages to make a smart choice on the wine list going back to our wine list in the restaurant so up until a few years ago it would actually be worth knowing the warm summers i.e good vintages in order to pick a loire because it's quite far north in france and ditto a burgundy from a year that is actually going to be a good year because otherwise the wines could just not be quite ripe enough and particularly in the loire and this lovely cabernet franc that we're going to be tasting black grape varieties producing red wines they need lots of ripening and if you get underripe black grapes you end up with really stalky yucky tannin tough acidic wines really not very pleasant whereas actually if you look at the past five years as an example nearly every year literally from 15 to where we are now great ripe grapes in northern france so again another example of, of how that kind of thing is getting a bit easier so this is something that does confuse me in terms of vintages. And I think it's really important because everyone says, a, a, you know, a 2014 whatever. And you go, golly, that's a number. You sound like you're suggesting that a, a warm summer in the Loire Valley is going to produce a good wine from the Loire Valley. But at the same time, you're also saying it's not all about 
the climate because it can be too hot and it can be too cold. There's a lot of compromises that seem to be made to to come up with a, a good vintage. So in order to know the good vintages, it's almost as if you need to know it as a fact rather than say, well, I know 2014 and 15 were hot summers or whatever. Therefore, a wine coming from the Loire Valley is going to be nice. Is it a case that you've actually got to know the particularly good vintages for a particular wine in order to know what to order? I think it's helpful with wines that are coming from regions that are, quotes, marginal when it comes to geography and climate. The Loire is a good example. That's why I wanted to to taste it tonight. And even though, as I've just said, the past five years, 15, 16 onwards have been pretty fantastic. 17 wasn't great. 18, 19, very good. 20, I think it's a bit early, but it's to tell, but it's looking looking good. I know, because it, and it's easy to remember, the years 2000, 2005, 09, 10, and then 15 and onwards are good vintages. When it comes to knowing a decent vintage for a particular region, it's the marginal regions where that is more sensitive, or is it is it just as important in those regions that you would not classify as marginal? It's still relevant overall within France, but but the Languedoc in the south of France, it's less of a big deal because the climate is warmer and more reliable than Mediterranean than it is in Bordeaux, or Loire, or Burgundy, okay? I'll just need to briefly mention the, the other extreme, i.e. the 30 degrees bit, is really important too for, for a couple of reasons. One is plants have a life cycle and they, the life cycle is, you know, they wake up in the spring, they shoot, they produce buds, they produce flowers, pollination, flowers becomes fruit. Fruit becomes grapes, grapes become wine. After harvest, the vine goes into dormancy when the winter comes on. You don't see anything from the vine till the following spring. That could not happen in a tropical climate. The vine would just constantly be wanting to produce more fruit and therefore it would could potentially shoot more than once a year. The fruit quality would suffer as a result. The vine needs a life cycle in order to be dormant, to produce fruit just once a year. So that's really important. The other point about producing grapes in, in areas where it's potentially too warm, is that believe it or not, you can ripen grapes too quickly. The flavours, and later on in the series, we are going to look at a whole ep just looking at flavours and aromas in, in real detail. If it's done subtly over a long growing period with gentle ripening of grapes, then you can develop amazingly nuanced, interesting flavours. If you just whack the grill on max, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, cooking too quickly you'll just burn it and you won't cook it properly it's the same principle with grapes so actually you need to be really careful that you're not overcooking your grapes so that explains the 30 degree end of our 30 50 spectrum and as we're about to find out you can also use natural factors that could either warm things up in places that you think would be too cool or cool things down in places that you might think would be too warm to actually kind of create a moderating effect if you like to, to get get places really comfortably within that 30 50 band what i find so fascinating about this it's a little bit like photography in that there's a compromise when you're making a beautiful photograph between how much light you've got available how wide the aperture is how fast your film is the shutter speed and you get all different nuanced effects just by those four variables that seem even more in the world of winemaking yeah and that's what makes it so complex much more complex than photography in that sense oh it's totally it's really complex Olam. and we haven't even begun to talk about soils and <laughs> Mm-hmm. And fine training systems and terroir and the skill of the of the viticulturalist and the skill of the winemaker. So the variables involved are just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But we're taking this really simply today. We are focusing on geography and um I think, oh, without further ado, it's time you got your little um, your little nose out and your tongue out. We have done quite a few ados, so let, without any further ones, uh, I've got my glass, I've got my ice bucket, I'm all prepared. I've got the cork half out with my uh, fancy corkscrew. 
We are in the southern hemisphere in south. If you look at where the 30 degree latitude marks hits the west coast of South America, you are in Chile in the kind of middle of South America. Slightly north, I'd say, but amazingly quite low down, you know, the 30 mark is lower down than I thought. It completely misses Brazil totally misses the middle ones like Bolivia and Paraguay. Uh, you get a, a bit of Argentina, so you get Argentinian wines. I love this because I'm just identifying places now using the globe where you get lots of wines from and quite a lot of Chile. Chile, as everyone knows, it's a very long, thin country. I mean, it's like 3,000 kilometres long and it's only about 150 kilometres wide or something ridiculous. This wine, this, so it's 100% Chardonnay. We'll talk Chardonnay in a sec, but just on the geography thing, we're at the kind of northern limit of... Chile's vineyards, as you would expect, because we're at 30 degrees. You could be even north of Limari, and you could be in a place called the Elki Valley, 29 degrees old, outside the 30-50 zone. But let's look at this wine. Chardonnay, what do you know about Chardonnay? Well, I know it's the most popular grape in the world. I know, like most things that are very popular, there can be something of a backlash against the Chardonnay, because it's popular, and therefore there can be some... I don't know whether you'd call it snobbery or inverted snobbery, probably just pure snobbery, which says that lots of people like Chardonnay, therefore maybe I should try and find something wrong with it. I think it's not not too acidic. I don't think it's quite as acidic as a Sauvignon Blanc. I think you can get oaky and non-oaky. That's what I've learned about Chardonnay in a nutshell, which is all I have. That's pretty good, all actually. Back in the 90s, as we discussed in the first ep, when Australia and New Zealand, but particularly Australia, was the culprit, if I may use that word, suddenly started exporting hugely oaked Chardonnays, you know, quite big, chunky wines, very kind of stone fruit and bananary flavours, but with lots of oak, lots of toast and smoky flavours. And a lot of people said, goodness me, this tastes like cat's pee and it's just so strong and oaky and yuck. Some people mm. love that style, by the way. This is a style thing. I remember those ones, those heavy ones, in the 90s and, and the Californian ones as well. That created this thing called the ABC movement, anything but Chardonnay. Remember ABC? Do, do, do. Anyway, um, sorry about I, that. I remember the Motown and, and also the 80s pop group. That's yeah. it. That's it. That's it. So there was this anything but Chardonnay thing. Some people, like our dear friend Dean, one of our quartet, he won't drink Chardonnay and he gets kind of mm. grumpy when I mention Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> and, Aggressive. Uh, yes. And, and again, it goes back to this kind of legacy of, of the big New World beefy jobs that were going on in the 90s. What you say oaky, uh, and there's one of those phrases that I, I, I sort of think I know what I'm talking about but i'm not absolutely sure presumably it's uh it's a it's a flavor that you know puts you in mind of um oak the smell of oak or the smell of oak trees or whatever is it also to do with the way the wine is made or is it simply an oak flavor that you get from that particular combination of chemicals that chardonnay um gives you no it's actually part of the winemaking process right uh, which we'll obviously discuss in our winemaking ep later in the series in, in more detail, but no, totally all. So the winemaker has a choice. Let's just say for the sake of argument, the fermentation happened in stainless steel, which is where most fermentation of, of wines happens. The winemaker then has an option. Do I want to stick this wine in oak for a period of time before I bottle it? If I stick it in new oak, i.e. oak that's just been made and hasn't been used before, then the barrels, the oak barrels will impart oak flavours and you often get a very kind of vanilla flavour or cedar flavour or a toasty kind of smoky flavour sometimes and Chardonnay is a good example because it can be made absolutely with no oak at all. Some wine makers say actually I 
stylistically I quite like that kind of vanilla sort of nutty smoky flavour I want that mm -hmm. to be part of the wine therefore they will use oak in the winemaking process presumably all different types of wood which we definitely don't know what to get into and different levels of toasting <laughs> the oak barrels so yeah good lord oh, really god, yes it's crazy likely toasted likely toasted cedar barrel wine please yes right gosh this is getting more complicated I haven't even tried it yet, uh, Rich. I'm going to um, smell and slurp. Before we try it, give it a good old smell first, Ol. I can't smell too much. Give it a shake, shake in your hand a bit. That can help release some of the aromas out of the glass. Come on, Chardonnay, you can do it. The reason we're having that discussion about people oaking, choosing to put oak in Chardonnay or not, one of the reasons there's a discussion or debate about that is because Chardonnay is actually not particularly aromatic so it doesn't smell right. much by itself right so when right. you said you're not smelling well today well actually you're smelling Chardonnay and it's really compared with that Marlborough Sauvignon from New Zealand <laughs> which was just hopping out of the glass and giving you loads of zingy flavours Chardonnay is pretty quiet I tell you what though swirling it around the glass really brought something out again it was subtle but that really really worked Great. I, I, I've ne I never really swirl my wine because it always seems so pretentious. But now I know why I'm doing it. I'll do it every time, particularly with your first sip. Oh, yeah. It's so different from a Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. It feels less acidic, but I'll do the dribble test in a minute. And it just feels like there's less to it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's almost like it's refreshing, but there doesn't feel as much going on in my mouth. It's brilliant. You're spot on. I'm certainly not put off by ABC. Absolutely not. Good. Because to me, if something's popular, there's a reason it's popular. <laughs> uh, because it's nice. Or it's nice to an untrained palate anyway. I'm wondering if I could have a bit more of a taste hit, actually. Mm. But it's it's pleasant. It's pleasant, but it's quite hard to define and describe, isn't it? Oh, I'm glad you said that because I was struggling and I thought you were going to say, well, it's clearly car tyres and aspic and blackberry. <laughs> Think of the basics that we talked about last week. It's a dry wine, clearly. There's no sweetness going on here. The acidity is not high. That doesn't mean I'll say that it cannot be high in Chardonnay. It's about wine styles. That, and, and, and the thing about Chardonnay, and the reason I think it's the most popular wine and grape variety in the world, and my actual favourite white variety in the world, is because it has so many different faces. It can be so many different things. So the profile of it, in terms of its taste and its acidity, the fruit you can notice, whether it's citrus or stone or tropical and bananas and lychees by the way which this one isn't think citrus and, and there may be none think green fruit think apple and pear think stone fruit apricot and peach and nectarine any of those things I'm struggling i don't know if i had if i was forced to guess at gunpoint i'd say soft fruit but that's probably because that's been put in my mind and i'm highly suggestible my palate is unsophisticated even though the acidity is not as high as the Sauvignon Blanc, it's not totally crisp, but there's a crispness to it without it being very crisp. Do you know what I mean? It's got a nice... De yes. It's got yes, a nice I was structure. Going to say, compared to the so, definitely not. But there is something going on there, which is which is dry and, like you say, sharp. I mean, this is where, I, of course, I'm going to struggle, which is a, a, attaching, you know, descriptive adjectives to something that is, is, a, is a taste. So it's all quite sort of ethereal and difficult to put your fingers on i can't identify a fruit really I, I don't think i could i don't think i'd be um, authentic if i if i said i if i said i could there's quite a long aftertaste because we're talking about the uh the uh, the finish last time 
the finish, sir. That's right. Which is pleasant. Just to wrap up on this wine and the flavours, I'm picking up a few things. I would mention things like green fruit. I'm getting a bit of kind of apple, maybe a bit of pear. A little bit of citrus, but not kind of lemon and lime zingy stuff. More possibly maybe at a push, maybe a bit of grapefruit. But it's not overtly fruity, I would say. If anything, I'd be getting a bit of kind of stone fruit, a bit of peach, peachy flavour or apricotty sort of flavour. There's something happening here, which I can't quite describe as usual, but I want to say salted caramel but i feel like is that a mm. ridiculous taste to associate with a wine but there's something that reminds me of salted caramel as i drink it i haven't had anything sweet for many hours so i mean i don't know i could be going bonkers my taste buds could be giving me wrong info but that's just what i'm feeling well i think that's a good feeling and hold on to that feeling two thoughts one is you know and you'll realize this all the more we do this Anything you say that's honest in terms of what your the way your brain is interpreting possibly the aromas or flavours that you're detecting, say it. It's totally fine. There isn't some sort of language, you know, that you, you have to conform to here. Yes, clearly there are certain ways of doing things as a kind of guideline. But if salted caramel is coming up for you, then that's what you say. And interestingly, you say that some wines, particularly non-aromatic varieties like Chardonnay, where we struggle to get fruit characteristics and stuff, often ha- have other qualities. Sometimes wines have this type of slightly stoniness to them all. I think I know what you mean. And I'm not saying we're tasting the Pacific Ocean just a few kilometres away from the vineyard in Chile. But, salty, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, salty, salty caramel. But a, a kind of stoniness, often you do get, as I said, particularly when fruit isn't bursting out. This vineyard in Chile comes from a river valley coming down from the Andes and it's not far from the ocean. So why can't it be stony? I think that's rather nice. Do you think that's actually, you can link it like that? You can link um, physical geography to the, the tastes? That sounds extraordinary to me. It sounds controversial, but I have tasted lots of wines that have been made close to the sea. They don't all taste salty, but they do taste a bit different. If you ever taste Albarino, don't, well, maybe we'll taste one later in the series, from northwest Spain, they often have a slightly sort of bracing Atlantic saltiness characteristic about them. But you have to be careful. You can, it's not been proven scientifically, but sometimes I think you can pick these things up a bit. Let's just say maybe there's an association here rather than a cause. Well, I think it's a rather romantic notion, which is quite nice. So let's let's stick with it. And thank you for giving me the license, as I knew you would, to say what's on my mind about the words that describe what I'm tasting. I, you know, I'll try to be you know honest, and, I, and I'm hoping that my my palate and also my vocabulary, if you like, will improve throughout the series. Just bringing it back to the climate, at 30 degrees, you could be very, very warm and you could have a very wide wine that didn't have, when I say that, I mean, it wouldn't have much acidity. And when wine loses acidity, it becomes quite flabby in your mouth. This wine does have nice structure, which belies its 30 degrees latitude. And one of the reasons that is, is because this wine is made in an area that is so cool for its latitude, because it's only this uh, Tabali, the producer, the, the, the vineyard of the where they make the the Chardonnay, is only 25 kilometres from the Pacific Ocean. But you're thinking, hang on, it's 30 degrees, not that far from the tropics. It must be really warm and sultry there. It's cool. The ocean, the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Chile is so cold because there's a current that comes up from the South Pole called the Humboldt Current, which means that people don't swim in the sea much in Chile. And as a result, even though you're on the edge of a desert edge of the Atacama Desert in Chile at 30 degrees, if you plant your grapes close enough to the ocean, 
they are going to be cooled by the really quite cold winds that come off the very cold sea. And that's why we've got, and I know you don't know this, all because you haven't tasted other Chardonnays, but this is why this Chardonnay could easily be a Chardonnay from the southern part of Burgundy at maybe 45 degrees in, right. in terms of its structure and its style, but it's not. It's funny, I've just been spinning the globe around, actually, Rich, uh, which we talked about before, and some of the countries that are in the same latitude sort of Texas, Nepal, Pakistan, Iraq, Libya, India, places that you know are baking hot. And that's the kind of uh, place that's on the same latitude in the Northern Hemisphere. So for 30 degrees, you've either got to have a really cold current and winds blowing in that are slowing down the ripening of those grapes to stop them baking too fast, or you need to be up bank. You need to be at altitude, which is another great moderating factor. And although we're not tasting it tonight, we went just next door to Argentina, all There are vineyards in Argentina at lower latitudes than 30, 22 degrees. Wow, good effort. How can they be making wine there? Answer, at two and, and a half thousand metres yeah. of altitude. Whoa, so, nice. and so for every 100 metres altitude, you drop 0.6 degrees centigrade. Oh, I like that stat. Lovely so every 1,000 metres is 6 degrees centigrade drop. Wow. So if you go 2,000 metres up, 12 degrees centigrade drop. So if it's sort of 35 degrees and, and humid and all the rest of it, if you're at 2,000 metres, it's probably going to be 23 degrees with cool breezes. Sounds a bit like northern France to me. Yeah, similar principle to skiing in Sweden, where it's so northern, you can ski below the tree line. You don't have to go up so high because uh, you're in Sweden, and it's really quite cool. Right, let us go back to Europe. We're in France. What I really wanted to do with this wine, Ol, this is 100% Cabernet Franc. Have you heard of it? No, I have not. Obviously, I've heard of Cab Sav, which also I don't pronounce that way, but I'm assuming that Cab, Cab is a cousin, maybe, <laughs> or some kind of relative. Actually, the father. Not terribly well-known, but one area that it has grown extensively is in the Loire Valley, which oh, is boy. in, as we said earlier, central western France at around, I think, 46, 47 degrees, getting towards our um, 50 threshold. And the reason Cabernet Franc really focuses around this region of France, which is quite far north, is because Cabernet Franc can ripen in these slightly cooler places. Oh, it's a lovely colour. It is a sort of pinky purpley red, unless I'm very much mistaken. Deep red, but there is a bit of a... A purpliness going on towards the edge, I'd say. That purplish hue suggests that the wine is quite young. It sounds like this one is probably medium ruby, I'd say, rather than yep. deep ruby. I think so. So it's 2019 as well. So that does that does that compute? 2019, so fairly fairly young wine. What I want you to do, all is really smell this wine. Do you like the smell of this wine? That's a simple question. Wow. There is a lot going on, and I quite like it. I'm a bit influenced by what I've heard before, but there is some sort of musty, wet, doggy... Hang on. Maybe it is a wet dog hair kind of thing going on. There's very great depth to this wine. There's loads of, loads of smell. No, I'm starting to like it. That's why I wanted us early on to have a Cabernet Franc because it's so aromatic. Often it's in blends. You know, you'll find it tucked mm. into a bit of Bordeaux or to something else, 5 or 10%. Mm. So you'll never really notice it. It might not, even, particularly in France, won't be mentioned on the label. But Cabernet Franc is so aromatic and it's so beautiful oh, yeah. when it's ripe. 
can you smell raspberries? I just think this smells of raspberries or raspberry leaf or blackcurrant leaf. It's a bit herbaceous as well, a bit grassy, and it's sort of, it's kind of red fruity grassy. Do you get any of that? Herbaceous, yes. Fruity, still trying. There's so much, there's so much happening. It's like I'm sort of slightly overloaded. I mean, it's a bit of an assault on the old hooter, isn't it? Yeah, but it's in a nice way. It smells a bit like pencil shavings or sharpened pencils. Do you remember we used to sharpen pencils at school? Yeah, Miss Soudan had an electric one, which we used to argue over who could use. Right. An electric, An electric pencil. Can you imagine? Wow. This was the 70s, an electric pencil yeah. sharpener. But anyway, there's something lovely woody smoke or wood smell yes. as well. Yes, there's yes. definitely wood and herbaceous. Let's taste the bugger. Come on, I'll have a little sip. All right, here we go. Oh, golly, it's so different from the claret. Quite like that. Yeah, it's not quite as overpowering as I thought it would be from the nose. But maybe I'm just slightly high from the vapours. I don't know. It's got a terrific nose on it. 13% alcohol here, which is medium. Up until recently, up until the summer started getting warmer, going back to our geography bit at the beginning, Loire Cabernet Franc could, could be 11.5%, 12%, really right. light, really light-bodied, thin in the mouth, could be quite acidic, quite grassy, quite herbaceous. Really not very popular other than in the Loire Valley or in the brasseries of Paris. That was the market for these wines. By the way, I'm reading the wine list and by golly, as predicted, the, there is more than a smattering of Cabernet Franc uh, in the Loire Valley red section of the Chez Bruce wine. It's loads. Six or seven out of out of about a dozen. Oh, Rich, um, I, I just want to look at the label because when someone shows me a label, I want to know what the hell I'm talking about. So the things that are on the, this label, it says Domaine de la Noble. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and then it says Le Temps des Cerises. And then it says Chinon at the bottom. And that's all it's got on the, uh, on the, on the bottle. How can you deduce that's a Cabernet Franc, for example, or, or indeed where it's from. Domaine de la Noble. That is the name of the estate, the producer of the wine. A domaine is like an estate, okay? Right. So that's the Domaine de la Noble, the noble estate. Nice name. Le Ton des Cerises. Which sounds like cherry time. Very good, or ch ch cherry weather. Every wine they produce has to have a name. This one's called Le Ton des Cerises. Cherry weather. Ah, not cherry time, which would be a, a very unusual children's tv program from the 1950s now children is cherry time sit down and um <laughs> very good chinon chinon is the appellation okay going back to our chat about appellation so chinon yes. is a historic town in the loire valley region this is where the wine's from and if you look on the back label it'll probably say appellation controle chinon or something it absolutely just say that do you find the words cabernet franc anywhere on the label i'll be pretty annoyed if i don't uh, but yes, to be fair, you do. A Cabernet Franc, Good. Give you a clue. And then underneath that, it says Vendange Manuel. So. Hand harvested grapes. Ah. A Vendange is the harvest in France. And Vendange Manuel means it's a manual operation, i.e. not full of tractors coming along and with their funny gadgets. Which led to the bitterness that we talked about last week. I found that fascinating. It's smoother. The, 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 obviously, the, the aroma is, is far, far better. There's more going on. The taste is more subtle and there's no bitterness. If I was tasting these two, the one from last week and this one, I, I would choose this one for sure. Yeah, maybe think about this because I know you're struggling to name the fruits at the moment, but the fruits that jump out for me, definitely raspberry. Going back to that smell of raspberry leaf, black cherry, a little bit of red plum, a bit of red currant, black currant. It's really juicy. But to me, it's the aroma of Cabernet Franc. It's so good because when we do our episode on tasting, you'll realise that smelling is 90% of tasting. Ah, 
yeah, I heard something similar. The the smell of it is unbelievable. I'm trying to get those soft fruit. I know I'll be able to discriminate by the end of the by the end of this series. But it's a lovely structured wine. You can tell, or can't you straight away that it's a dry wine. There's no sweetness here. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Yep. And yep. and again, quite structured. There's a nice acidity and it's got a lovely finish. I'm still tasting it. I don't yes. think there's any. Are you still tasting the wine? Yes, absolutely. Still tasting it. And it's not like it's running out of its power or, 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 or becoming in any way unpleasant. It's a lovely memory of the effect it had swirling around my mouth. Very, very nice. I'm very impressed with that, actually. Tannin. Do you know what tannin is? I believe it's a substance in the skin of the grape, which is one of the large differentials, apart from colour, of um, white wine and red wine. Correct. And are you tasting tannin in this wine? And you'll know if it's there. Is it coating your teeth or your gums at all? I feel the roof of my mouth is coated. Teeth? No, but there's some coating feeling uh, which makes me leads me to believe that by your definition I might be but I could be wrong yeah and we'll taste tannins more in some of the wines later on in the series all red wines have tannins to some degree and sometimes the tannins can be quite aggressive in young wines particularly and they really kind of attack your gums and your teeth and they dry out your gums and it's just not a good feeling and it's not a good taste and that's why a lot of wines have to be left for years to let the tannins calm down a bit this wine is a young wine the tannins are there Cabernet Franc definitely has tannins the tannins in this wine are medium or a bit below medium and they are so beautiful the main thing from this wine apart from these incredible aromas soft red fruits lovely structure of acidity and just an overall pleasing memory your words i'm still tasting it i am yeah and it really is it's lovely yeah really nice the finish on this wine is more is getting on for two minutes and that is really unusual so well done uh domaine de la noble Okay, Alt, so we've tasted our two wines. We've talked about geography. Does that geography thing make sense at all? Can you sort of link the geography with what we've tasted a bit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the things I've learned about geography would be that you could say Goldilocks zone, not too hot, too cold. And that is very broadly defined by this 30-50 latitude thing, both in the northern and in the southern hemisphere. But of course, there are other factors, such as the cooling effect of winds, which can happen when you're close to the ocean, for example. And what I really didn't realise was that, of course, if you've got a very hot country, which is like less than 30 degrees, maybe, that can be counterbalanced, if you like, by being on a, a higher level above the sea level, because that's where things are going to be cooler. Other things, of course, come into play like seasonality. So there has to be seasonality. So the seasons have to exist within the country that you're in, in order for the grape to have its natural life cycle, as well as the temperature being correct, not too hot, not too cold. And also the other thing which I always find is fascinating is this marginality piece which is where you have somewhere which is just on the cusp of being acceptable for a lovely grape to grow and that can be a good thing the byproduct of that is that it can produce these chemicals which add sort of subtlety individuality and basic tastiness to the wine as well so multifactorial gold star all well done you oh, thank you're, you're out a full uh, slurp and swallow now of the Domindola Noble because it's so delicious two delicious wines excellent choices well described so thank you very much and it's time to look forward a little bit to next time uh, so we've covered climate and the very basics and uh, I think uh, episode three is going to cover a country focus rich if I'm not mistaken we are going to stay in France okay we've been in Chile but also we've been in France as well uh, with this episode and I just thought it would be really really good just to focus on France a bit we can't even focus on the whole of France I mean golly that would just take many episodes to do that but the point of episode three all is that I want to build on your knowledge of geography and wine tasting a bit and look at 
two regions of France, one quite far north, Burgundy, Chablis actually, northern Burgundy, and another one south in the southern Rhone, so getting down towards the Mediterranean. So a bit of geography may well come into play too. But next time we're going to be actually tasting four wines. So, you know, judicious use of your spittoon, please. I'm really interested to know whether you can taste the difference in quality. So we'll be tasting and comparing two Chablis from the same year, 2019. We'll be comparing a basic Wine Society Chablis with a slightly smarter Chablis called the Wine Society's Chablis Premier Cru. And we'll discuss what this all means next time. And at the other end of France, in the Rhone Valley, southern Rhone, as I say, sort of in the Avignon area, if you want to look at your map in advance, or we'll be tasting and comparing a 2017 basic Côte du Rhone with a 2016 wine called Gigondas. And Gigondas is a really well, we'll say, discuss it more next time, but it makes a very good quality wine from the Southern Rhone. So I'd be interested to see if we can notice some quality differences between the basic Côte de Rhone there and the Gigondas. So that's all coming up next time. Loads of stuff I've learned yet again, uh, just simply from uh, the subject of geography. Extraordinary. Geography, yeah, is amazing. Wait till we get to history, but that's, uh, that's going to be episode four. Episode two is geography. I'll go and enjoy those wines with Louise and see you next time. Thank you so much, Rich. See you next time.